Hey, everybody, this is Dr. William Clark here for Leadership Conversations. This is the show where we talk about leadership according to the world that matters to you. I wanted to continue this conversation uh, that we've been having all year long, talking about uh, business ownership and business leadership. And I wanted to have this conversation with people that I personally respect and trust who have been running successful organizations for quite a while. And so that has not changed with my next guest. Uh, my next guest is Terry Dorsett, Dr. Terry Dorsett, rather. He's the executive director of the Baptist Convention of New England. Terry, how are you this morning? Oh, I'm great. Looking forward to being with you. Yep. Well, I wanted to have this conversation with you um, for a number of reasons, Terry. You know, I, I, I view you a certain type of way. Um, you are that person that, uh, that I speak of, um, in flowery terms because you welcomed me and my family to Connecticut, um, in a way that I needed it the most when you did, or when we first met. Uh, so I always hold you in high esteem for that. And, um, but I'm not the only one. So there are many, many people who are appreciative of, the opportunity to come across your path and thank God that we did. Uh, but what then I later learned <clears throat> about you that deepened my respect for you is, is your business skills, right? And <laughs> in the world of nonprofits and churches, etc., cetera, uh, our community is not necessarily known for <laughs> its business acumen. And so at the time you and I met, I was nearing the end of my doctoral work. And so I was deep into this research about nonprofit and church-based sustainability, the business practices that we all should master, some of which are theoretical and based upon secular ideals, and some of which were based upon flat-out scripture. And as I watched you from afar, had conversations conversations with you, it became clear you figured out you are one of those people that I write about, which is you figured out how to balance between the theory and faith and how it all comes together. So that's why I wanted to have this conversation. With that said, tell us, you know, tell us your story. Like, how did how did you get to this point at the BCNE? I mean, what's your background? You know, what do people what should people know about you and and how you got to the BCNE as executive director? Yeah, uh, mostly by lots of doing it wrong. And then you, if you make enough mistakes, you eliminate all the mistakes, then you do something right. Yeah. So, so uh, well, I was blessed to grow up in a wonderful Christian home. I had great Christian parents. And they did love Jesus very, very much. They still love Jesus very much. But like most Christians, they, they were not great at handling money. And I don't say that in any way disrespectful to them. They would admit that to you themselves, that they love Jesus. Their faith was strong, but they had a challenging time balancing a checkbook. Yeah. So uh, I think learning is watching my parents, these people of great faith that just struggled a lot. And a lot of it was because they didn't know how to manage money. Just, I don't know, at even a young age, I began to think, okay, there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to, to somehow merge faith and money management together in some way. Um, that, that, that will work and make life better. So that's kind of was a early in my Christian formation that was kind of in the, you know, in the back of my mind, I didn't really have a chance to practice any of that though, until I moved to Vermont. Uh, when I left, when I left the Bible Belt in the South and moved to Vermont, suddenly I found myself serving very small churches that were perpetually broke. And no matter what you did, though, you, you could teach people about stewardship and you could try to be, you know, you could try to encourage people to give. The reality is, is those churches in northern Vermont are in very small towns. 
very rural towns, very poor towns, no matter how much the people gave, it was never probably going to be enough to really do what needed to be done. So then I began to have to think through other, other ways of finding money. And at the time there wasn't really a lot of good, there really wasn't a lot of good models. So I did, when I, I joke about making lots of mistakes, I really did learn to do it the wrong way a lot before I finally figured out, you know, and I'm still not sure that I have it the right way. I'm still learning and growing. And about the time I think I've got it figured out something in culture changes and I have to shift my model again. Uh, but somewhere along the way, I began to, to have more success than failures. And, you know, about four years ago, the Baptist convention was at a place where they, they were $300,000 in debt and needed, you know, a new leader. They're, they're, Current their their previous leader who was a wonderful wonderful man great pastor had a degree in counseling and if you were in a moment of crisis he was the man go to him in a moment of crisis he was the guy uh, from a fundraising perspective that was not his gift at all and he had not done much of it because that's just not what his gift was so we found ourselves three hundred thousand dollars in debt with a declining budget and a you know a, a a bleak sort of outlook and so someone had heard about all of my various fundraising efforts and ended up ended up with the job and it took us 18 months but in 18 months we retired the debt and got the organization on better financial footing and though we still have a long way to go we are no longer the outlook is no longer bleak now the outlook is very positive and we're very much poised for the future thanks for sharing that you know what i i wanted to highlight for the audience um, is something you said, and I think that many of us need to uh, probably shift towards uh, as leaders and as uh, fundraisers in chief. Uh, and that is uh, what you said was you, you shift your fundraising model to adjust with the culture of fundraising economic trends. Uh, what what are you doing to, to keep a pulse on what's happening uh, with those trends that would or may lead you to shift your model? Well, I'm a part of several different uh, fundraising like networks, mostly online. So, you know, probably I, I'm not as involved as I probably should be because I have other duties. I have a lot of other responsibilities in addition to fundraising. So I don't get to just devote myself all, all the way to fundraising. Uh, but I try to be involved in those groups and so, you know, those groups, of course, there's lots of dialogues and discussions that happen in the online groups that you just take part in and learn. But also, you know, they eventually will produce, they usually produce white papers or someone will release their research. I'm also a part of a group. You know, I happen to be a Baptist. And so there's a whole network of Baptist foundation directors of people who are running foundations. And so I try to be active in that group as well. And of course, some of those are very, very large foundations. I mean, the Oklahoma Foundation has hundreds of millions of dollars they manage. And so when those guys speak, I really pay attention because they've got professional research marks this out. I've also uh, befriended, there's a wonderful fellow who works for Guidestone, which is a very large uh, organization. Uh, he's, he's a wonderful guy. He used to live here in New England, so he understands New England very well. Actually, at one point was on staff here at the BCNE. He's kind of taken me under his wing and gives me lots of advice and Every so often, he'll see something and I'll send out and he'll call me and say, we got to talk because that was not a good presentation. And that's, that's exactly what I need. Someone who's got a professional staff you know, behind him that helps me, who doesn't have a professional staff, try to be as professional as I can be. Yeah. You know, one of the things you said uh, that's impressive uh, is that you paid off uh, nearly or uh, just a tad over $300,000 in uh, deficits or debt in 18 months. 
And for many of the listeners, um, some may be experiencing that type of deficit. Uh, so I do want to ask a question about that. But then there are some listeners who can't even imagine how uh, an organization or nonprofit can get into debt. So first of all, talk to us about what can lead uh, an organization into a debt crisis of that size or greater. And then talk to us about what strategies you use to get out of that type of debt. Well, most of the time when an organization gets into debt, it's unplanned. And that's exactly what our situation was. We, we had an old office building that was only offices, which honestly was not very helpful to us. Well, one of the main ministries that we do is we train leaders. So what we really needed was a training facility, not an office building. So we had a pretty big piece of land that we owned. And this was probably, I'm going to say maybe 20, 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. So we already owned the land. And so we decided to put a training facility on this piece of land and, and get rid of the office and, just, and have more of a training facility. So there was a fellow who was just, you know in charge of that whole project. And just for a variety of reasons, the project ran far over in cost. Uh, for instance, they discovered there's a little small pond on the property and they discovered a rare salamander in the pond, which required us to relocate the building and redo the septic system and all that to protect the salamander. And so that was a, you know, hundred thousand dollars of engineering work that we hadn't, you know, put into the plan. There were some other cost overruns that, uh, it happened in the midst of all of those cost overruns. One of the significant donors um, who made a $100,000 commitment got frustrated with all the cost overruns and changed their mind and decided not to make the commitment. And so all of a sudden we found ourselves, you know, with a building that wasn't yet finished, was costing more than we thought, and we'd lost a significant donor to the project. And so obviously we couldn't have a half-finished building. So we ended up taking out a $300,000 loan, which we could not afford. We had no way to pay it back. We had no plan to pay it back, but we were just in a mess. So an individual, just a very dedicated Christian uh, business lady, loaned us $300,000 basically on a, on a handshake and a promise that we would pay it back at some point. And so we started making interest payments to her with the idea that somewhere along the way we'd come up with a plan to pay it back. So that's how we got into the debt. The problem is, is no one ever made a plan to pay it back. So for 18 years, we made interest payments to her, which she was happy to receive. <laughs> you know, it, she's a business person. You know, that's what she does for a living is she loans money and makes money off the interest. So she was happy for 18 years. And we paid 18 years, and that's all we could afford was the interest payments. But at the end of 18 years, we still owed $300,000. We had not paid anything on the principal. Well, then the lady passed away, um, and her lawyer showed up and said we had 90 days to pay off the loan so the estate could be settled. Well, obviously, we didn't, you know, we didn't have $300,000 then either. But at that point, we did have a building that was finished, so we were able to get a more traditional mortgage. So suddenly we had this payment that jumped up in size because it was no longer an interest only payment. It was now like a real payment to a real bank. And there was no longer any grace and leeway if we had a bad month or anything like that. And it really began to press us a lot. So that's how we kind of got into debt. It wasn't intentional. No one ever intended for it to last 18 years. But this happens in churches and nonprofits all the time because people, they, they have the best of intentions they make the best plans they can, but then something happens that wasn't in the plan and they don't know what to do. So they make some kind of stopgate kind of temporary arrangement 
and they just never go back and fix it. It happens all the time in churches uh, and in nonprofits because just nobody knows what to do. So yeah. I, that's how we got into it. And I think I don't think that story is unique to the BCNE. Obviously, you take out some variables, and you can insert any nonprofit into that scenario. So, what did you share with us? Some strategies you use to get out of debt, um, because some of some of which I'm, I'm aware of that that I thought were quite creative. But you know, share with us what you've done to get get that debt retired. I know that I would recommend this system to everybody, but you know, I'm a fairly bold person and I don't mind being bold. So not everyone will be comfortable with this, but I realized, you know, we needed to do something radical to get rid of this. So I called the person who was in charge of the BCNE when we got into debt. Now he's been retired now for 20 years. And I basically told him that I had a plan that I was going to get 300 people to give a thousand dollars each. And basically we were going to pay this debt off by getting 300 people to give a thousand dollars each. And I basically said to him, since you got us into debt, I want you to be the first person to give the first thousand. <laughs> and after a somewhat of a pause on the phone, where I'm sure he gulped several times, he said, my wife and I can do that. <laughs> so I then called uh, my predecessor, who did not put us into debt, but he was our director for 13 years and did not get us out of debt and basically gave him the same spiel. I said, you know, we're going to get you know, 300 people to give $1,000 each. And though you did not get us into debt, you also didn't solve the problem. And I need you to help me solve the problem by giving the second $1,000. Uh, and he readily gave it. He actually, it had been a long burden on his heart that in his 13-year tenure, he had not been able to retire the debt. So he didn't even have to pause or gulp. He was like ready. Uh, I think it also helped that I had already pre-alerted him that I'd already called the first guy. So I think he knew I would call it him next. <laughs> I then went to our board of directors. We have 43 board members. Not all of them had been on the board very long, but some of them had been on the board for many, many years and had none of them had, no, no one had solved the problem. And I basically said the same thing to them. You guys have been in leadership, but you haven't been leading and I need you to lead. And the way I need you to lead is to write a check for a thousand dollars. So 15 of the 46 people, uh, committed that day to a thousand dollars, so we ended up with, you know, twenty-two thousand dollars just from our key leaders. I then went to the full convention, you know, the, the annual meeting where all the, the the delegates meet. Gave them the same spiel. I knew most of them did not have a thousand dollars up front, so I encouraged them to give eighty-seven dollars a month, which would be a thousand dollars over the course of a year. And we raised about sixty thousand dollars in that meeting. There was about two hundred people there. We raised about sixty thousand dollars in commitments, so we were able to. Uh, take all of that money and make one big giant payment. And then I was able to show people, you know, we, you know, we had a whole variety of, you know, visuals and charts of how we slowly were eliminating the debt. But by getting that big chunk taken care of in the first 90 days, it really encouraged people. Like then people, there's lots of people who couldn't give a thousand dollars, but they could give $20, they could give $10. But I knew that if I started with the 10 and $20 gifts, it would take so long to make a dent in it that people would be discouraged before we ever got into it. So I really hit the big givers first so we could make a big splash. And once we made a big splash in it, then some of the smaller givers got excited too. And my original goal was 12 months. It took us 18 months, but I don't think anyone was disappointed. You know, we were just glad to have it eliminated. And then we took all the money we were paying for that loan and we, we reinvested all of it into youth ministry. So now we have a much stronger youth ministry, which people were also very excited about. It wasn't just eliminating a debt, but it was helping our organization do a better job of reaching the next generation. Wow. So let me just reiterate for those who are listening and trying to figure out strategies to raise money. By the way, uh, I don't know when this particular podcast or series of podcasts are going to um, uh, be airing, 
Um, but I have a, a grant writing workshop coming up. And quite frankly, I think that uh, people complicate the process of fundraising way too much. And I think you've given us some secrets in terms of what fundraising could look like. Number one, uh, what I took away, you said you requested funds. Uh, requesting funds from people can be a simple process. You know, if you simply say 300 people give $1,000, that's simple math, $300,000. So that's your debt. Uh, number two, once you get immediate lump sums of money, you said you, you put a dent into the debt. You immediately transferred it. You didn't wait until... Uh, wait, let's wait till we get $100,000 to make a payment. No, if I get $60,000 right now, <laughs> we're going to put it towards the principal and reduce that debt. And if it's not a debt in your organization, then you can re- you know, make that immediate investment in a major project for your nonprofit or church. The third thing uh, I took away, you said that you, you wanted to make a big splash with big givers. So you got to make sure that your big givers are aware of what's going on, make sure that they're invested. And then as the debt retires with any nonprofit church or business, the smart thing to do is to continue that aggressive nature of fundraising and reinvest those dollars. Now, are there other things that you are currently doing or have done to continue to raise new monies for the BCNE? The Baptist Convention is a network of churches that work together to do ministry. The Baptist Foundation is a separate organization that's controlled by the convention that basically raises money for endowment funds that creates perpetual ongoing income, because that's the other piece of of ministry is you've got to have sustainability, and the endowment funds give us sustainability for specific projects. So once we got the debt paid off at the BCNE, then we shifted most of our fundraising efforts over to the foundation to try to increase these endowment funds. So we had five endowment funds. Now we have 12, and they each have various you know, focuses. A lot of people did not get excited about giving to the general fund. I wish they did. <laughs> I wish people would just write a check, non-designated, and just let us have the money to do whatever we want to with. Some people will do that. Most people will not. So we have 12 different funds that each have some targeted purpose, and we encourage people to to donate to that. And we do that through a variety of ways. We have online efforts. We have an email campaign. We have an annual banquet. We, we have one-on-one meetings with some of our larger donors. You know, we just have a whole, a whole variety of ways that we're trying to, to raise money, but we're trying to do it for very targeted targeted specific causes as opposed to just the general fund. Yeah. And I think all nonprofit executive directors are saying, amen, general fund dollars, general fund dollars. And for those of you who are new to this, you know, what Terry is saying is that uh, whether you're a church or nonprofit, the general fund is is kind of the preferred destination for funds because you can use it for all purposes. Now, for nonprofits who may not raise significant dollars from individual donors, nonprofits, Terry, prefer to get unencumbered funds or unrestricted funds, which can be used for general purposes. So ultimately we're in the same boat, man. As, as long as we can get untethered dollars, that will <laughs> that will help us quite a bit. But if the only way that you can get a donation is for it to be designated, I don't want to we don't want to turn away at that. We just have to steer the donor to give it to us in a way that has as few strings attached as possible. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I don't think it would be wise for your church to receive a gift that was designated for children's Sunday school materials, because you might not have a Sunday school five years from now. You know, your church situation could change. But if you received a gift for children's ministry, that's, even though that's designated, it's broad enough, you will always have some kind of ministry you're doing to children uh, that you could use that for. 
The same thing would be true if someone wants to give to the building fund. You really don't want someone to give to the the parking lot fund because (laughs) that's kind of very narrow. You want people to give to the building fund or maybe the capital needs fund. That's broader. You can use it for the parking lot or for the roof or to replace the carpeting. You know, it's uh, so when someone is really insistent and wants to give a designated fund, I say take it, but help them give it in such a way that it's still fairly broad because that gives you that gives you just greater use of it. Otherwise you get pigeonholed. You'll end up with a lot of money for a very small program that you just don't need. But I think that speaks to, and this is a lesson for uh, emerging leaders, uh, the the need for emerging leaders of nonprofits to think much bigger or much broader about their business, their nonprofit, their church, et cetera. Uh, as you said, and I think this is an interesting statement, right? You don't you don't know if your Sunday school is going to be around in five years for children because your church may be aging, the church may be in transition, families may move out. And so you kind of pigeonhole money or you tie up money for something that may not ever come back for quite a while. Um, so, so let's, let's jump here really quick. Is there, are there any particular, um, indicators you look for when determining the financial health of a, of a church or a nonprofit, uh, as you've stepped into leadership roles over the years? Yeah, of course, the number one thing you look at is you do look at the multi-year like balance sheet, you know, how is the church doing over say the last five years? You know, it's hard to look at any particular month. Because, you know, churches do have good months and bad months. I mean, we live in New England. All it takes is three snowstorms in a row. And January, February, March could be a disaster. All right. So you really have to look at the annual report and see how it is annually. You can't look at any particular month. But if you look at an annual report and the income of a church, even if it's just flat and not declining, it's probably still a church in trouble. Because every year, everything costs a little bit more money. So if your budget is exactly the same every year, you're actually going in the hole 2 or 3% each year. Well, any one year, that's not a crisis. But over a five-year period or a 10-year period, that's a crisis. And so you really need to think that through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, in short, know your numbers. All nonprofits have to evaluate. Obviously, you have to have a staff. You probably have to have some kind of facility, whether you own it or whether you rent it. You have some kind of facility that you're doing your ministry or programs out of. And then you have your actual program cost. And I think it's hard sometimes to balance all that because the facility and the staff are probably going to be your two largest expenditures. But what gets people the most excited is actually the program stuff. So you have to figure out how do I tie the program, the excitement of the programs into the facility and to the staff because most people don't want to give you a lot of money for a facility or a lot of money for a staff. They want to give money to the programs, but the programs don't happen without the staff and the facility. So you have to think through when you're doing fundraising, how do I help people? How do I tie it all together? Because without tying it together, you're going to get 500 bucks for your children's program. What you really need is $2,500 because you need to pay the rent and you need to pay the person who's going to run this children's program. So you know, you have to kind of think that what's, what is the actual cost of that program, not just yeah. the cost for cookie use and, and, you know, construction paper, but what's the actual cost of the program? That's what you're trying to raise the money for. You know what, by you saying that you just, um, you just made me think about uh, maybe if we have time to do this for us to do a live course on budgeting and budget allocations to cover costs. Now, uh, for those of you watching, um, 
I already know what Terry's talking about. I already see the spreadsheet in my head of how this works. Uh, but I, I can't stress enough the importance of understanding how to cover costs of the important things and its inclusion in the program. Uh, today, on the nonprofit side, Terry, funders are very restrictive on how much fun, uh, how much money they are allocating. To overhead costs. Overhead costs are people like you, me, the secretary, uh, sometimes the rent, et cetera, the insurance, the liability, the supplies, depending on how restricted they are. And that can hamper a ministry, a church, a nonprofit from doing its core work when that type of restriction happens. Even some uh, individual donors may be restrictive. There are ways to get around it. Of course, I think as an executive director, uh, a person in a leading role, you got to understand your numbers, got to understand your program, got to understand who you're asking money from, and you got to understand how to apply the expenses of a program, a ministry, an event to the uh, available resources. So like you said earlier, uh, it's, it's not wise to ask for money for a parking lot that may not get paved uh, for another seven to 10 years. It might be more advantageous to ask for money for the building fund that may include the parking lot, the roof, the electrical, the plumbing, or the carpet upgrades or the seats uh, being upgraded. And I think that is uh, uh, more of a strategic way of, of looking at how to fundraise and how to generate revenue or how to have revenue go where you need it. Yes, absolutely. And even if you're trying to raise money for a building or for some kind of overhead cost, I still think you do it by sharing the vision of what you're trying to, of the impact you're trying to make. Yeah. And if I was trying to raise money for a, to buy a new building, I probably wouldn't start with a picture of the building. I would start with a picture of people in the neighborhood that the building is in and say, you know, this is Johnny who comes to our after school program and this is his mother you know, Mary, who, you know, was a single mom trying to raise three kids in a you know, difficult neighborhood. And, you know, we're, we, we've been helping them for the last two years. And once we get into this new building, we're going to be able to have a better program to help her have better job skills and a better after school program for her three children. That's how I would start. Because that's really what you're trying to do. Honestly, the building is the, the building is a byproduct of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to accomplish a mission, a purpose, you know, making people's lives better or having youth programs or job training programs, whatever the mission is you're trying to accomplish, the building, the personnel, all of that is, those are all just byproducts of the actual mission. So I think when you raise money, you start with the mission. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is the impact that we're trying to make. And in order to do that, we need A, B, and C. And that's going to cost us, you know, A, B, and C. Here's the cost that's going to get people's hearts more. Um, if you start with a picture of the building, probably 70, 80% of the people probably done before you, you know, you get done. They're probably done listening before you even get there, but we know you need the building. So, and, and larger donors, you know, larger donors who are going to be your, they actually understand that. They just want to make sure you understand that. So when you start with the discussion about the person whose life you're going to change, they know you're going to hit them up for money for the building when you get to the end of the conversation. So you're not surprising them. But they want to know that you understand. They want to make sure that you know this isn't about the building. This is about people, and that's what they want to fund is the people. So uh, you know, I think that's you know, you're not you're not being deceitful or manipulative. The larger donor understands it. The smaller donor might not understand it as much, but you're educating them to help them understand it. And I think that's the that's the key. 
So, 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 man, it's just so much. I wish we had more time, but I'll quote this uh, quick scripture. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent or harmless as a dove. And I think uh, the balance for faith leaders uh, of understanding how to educate their donors, how to inform their donors, how to run a successful business, because a nonprofit and a church is a business as well as a serving organization that's intended to save souls, right? Knowing how to balance that is so important, Terry. Um, let, let, let's in here, uh, give us a couple of fundraising strategies that <laughs> you've tried, you've heard of, you've seen that, you know, is not going to work at all. Yeah. Well, ones that won't work at all. You know, I think that when you start any kind of fundraising effort with, we need, <laughs> and then you finish, <laughs> you know, we need honestly turns a lot of people off, you know, wow. you, you know, uh, Instead, you try to start, and this is something I think has changed in, in donor relations. I think that 25 years ago, you could start with, we need. The church needs you to do X. Because 25 years ago, people had a sense of duty, that it's my duty to help the church, and people gave out of duty and out of obligation. That is not the world we live in anymore. I wish it was, because it's a lot easier to raise money with people who feel a duty and an obligation. But we just don't live in that world anymore. We live in a narcissistic world, and I'm not saying that to be critical of any of our donors, but that's just the world that we live in now. So it doesn't begin with we need. It begins with you want. You know, that donor wants to do something. Uh, You want to change lives in the inner city. You want to help young people go to college. You know, you want to help young moms get job training so they can make a better life for themselves. You know, you, you start with what it is you think the donor wants, you know, you want whatever it is. And then, you know, our organization comes alongside of you as a donor and we help you accomplish the thing you already want to do. And so we got to get away from the, we need and shift because the, we need most of the time you're, especially your larger donors and anybody under 50. If the, if the, if the pitch begins with, we need, you know, it's it's done before. No one's listening. They've stopped listening. Uh, so you got to really start with you want. You as a donor, here's what you want to do, and here's how we're going to help you do it. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is you have to be real about that. You can't say all those words and then go use the money for something different. You know, that's how that's a quick way to end your ministry or organization real quick. You really have to be, you have to know what your donors want, and you have to honor that, uh, which means that some people are not going to be donors to your organization because they want something different than what your organization wants. And I think we have to accept that. Not everyone. You know, we have this idea that, you know, I've got 3,500 people on my mailing list, so I'm going to get 3,500 people to give me money. No, honestly, you know, if I get 500 of that 3,500 to give me money in a given year, I'm just tickled, you know, I'm excited, uh, honestly, because 3,000 of them, whatever it is that I'm doing this year, it just doesn't interest them. It might next year. I'll have a different project next year, or maybe they'll be in a different place in their life next year. But this year, it doesn't matter what I say or do. They're not going to give anything because it just isn't what they want to do this year. And, and I think fundraisers just have to accept that. Terry, appreciate your time, sir. Appreciate the wisdom you shared. And uh, I'm sure uh, those of watching, those who are watching this particular uh, series will, uh, will get a lot out of it. Thanks, Terry.